Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. taken from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4 and verse 22 to 27. After reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with, thanks be to God. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. 22 to 27. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of, the God, of God gives it light, and the Lamb is his Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Yetunde. Can I quickly just make a quick, um, I'll, I'll read, uh, there was a slight mis- um, miscommunication there. Um, so we're still, we're reading chapter 22 as well, verses 1 to 3, as we can see on the screen. And uh, there is, um, verse 5 of 21 was omitted there. So 22, verses 1 to 3 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great, uh, sorry, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer would there be any curse, the throne of God and, the, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. All right, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you, um, hail and hearty. So for those who are coming for the first time, and maybe you've not been here in a long time, we've been doing a series, as we see on the screen. It's a gospel-centered open church. It's the name of the series. And that's because from the, from, from the months of September to November, we are trying to think of who we are, or we're trying to express who we are, we're trying to articulate who we are, so that it's not just uh, 
an identity statement, a gospel-centered urban church. What does that actually mean? Well, it means that the gospel is central to who we are. And so in the month of June, um, September, we treated gospel in four sermons. It also means that we want to be a missional church. As we said, this month is the church of mission. That is, we are sent out. But the context to which we are being sent out is the urban environment because we live in this city of Lagos. So this month we've been treating mission. Our first two sermons were evangelism, and the next three sermons are or the last. This is the final of three sermons on Christianity and work. And next month we are going to be treating community because we are not just gospel-centered and urban, but we are a church. So it's really a series for us to explain again who we really are. As I said, this month is Mission Month. This is the final sermon. We've been treated, we treated evangelism in the first two sermons. There was an imperative to go out, but at the same time, how do we do it? And so we spoke about how we contextualize our evangelism. But we've also said that work is very, very important. For people living in um, uh, an urban environment, our work is so important to us. We spend more time at work whether we're housewives or, or uh, stay-at-home um, parents or we are out in the, in the world, we spend more time doing our work than probably any other thing that we do. And so the integration of our Christian faith, whether it means anything, um, and our work is extremely important. And so we've been looking at that. And let me say one of the things we've been trying to say is this. How would we as Christians think about work? Well, I like that. It's thinking about it. You think about it and you practice it. And we said that is why this word called worldview is very important. What is a worldview? Well, in one way, you can just take the word view of the world. How do you view the world? A good definition that we've been using is it's a framework or, or is a framework or set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world and to view our calling and our future in that world. If you're going to think about work, especially from the Christian point of view. Now, you could just go to one or two verses here and there, but I don't think that gives us a comprehensive view that can take care of a lawyer's needs, a teacher's needs, a nurse's need. We take the Bible storyline, this framework that the Bible gives us, and then we see how that framework then helps us to view the world in relation to work. Now, we've been trying to build that worldview in our first two sermons, and I can't really do a rap, uh, a, 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 I don't want to start doing a summary of it now, that would be too long. So we're looking at the third one, but basically we're looking at the framework that the Bible presents us. It's a four-part framework. Creation, as the children showed us at the very beginning, God created. And then after creation, there was a rebellion of that creation against God, the fall. Then the third thing was in response to that fall, there was redemption, redemption that came through Jesus Christ. And there was the final one. Final one? New creation, all right? New creation. So there was creation at the beginning, and now you have new creation. And new creation really is all about the afterlife. The afterlife. How does the afterlife, thinking about what's going to happen beyond this life, how does that affect my work? Now, in our city today, I have to say that afterlife talks about the afterlife 
Um, in fact, it's very passe. Who, who really wants to talk about the afterlife? In fact, somebody will say something like this to you. The main thing about the afterlife is that it's afterlife, right? And so, quoting from Jesus, let after, let us look at after, after, right? Right now, let's talk about life. Because the afterlife is only focused on after of life. It cannot then help me to think about my work today. You know, we'd like to think about, if we think of the, the way the Bible presents the afterlife in a bad way, hell, we think hell is too archaic. In fact, it's psychologically traumatic. And so we just gloss over hell. Like one of my friends once said, why talk about hell when many people are already living here, living hell on earth? And then the good afterlife, quite often we like to refer to it as heaven, but if we listen to our message on gospel hope, we try to explain why that's not the best way. But when we think some people say heaven, well, the problem with heaven is that it's too abstract. And quite frankly, my teaching about it, it looks very, very boring. Why talk about going, escaping this world, going, let that take care of itself. What we need now as Christians, we need transformation. Because transformation is going to affect life today. Besides, why wait for heaven when you can have heaven on earth? And many times, this is the way we think about these things. The afterlife, therefore, is something we push for later. It will worry about itself. Can I suggest that part of the reason we look past hell and also uh, heaven or the new heavens and new earth, the reason why we do that is because our biblical witness or our biblical understanding of this topic is always flawed. It's mainly flawed. Because if you really understand what the Bible teaches about the afterlife, you will see that it is very relevant to what we are doing today. In fact, very relevant to your work. For example, in the first sermon, when we were thinking about the beginning, we were saying, well, a lot of our work reflects the creator God. That God as creator, we saw that when he was creating, he, had, um, he was creating, but he also was very concerned about order. So as creator, the creator that spoke, people who work in the creative fields or people, you know, people like artists, people like designers, or people who work in the field or the revelatory field, so people like teachers, they are reflecting God as creator. But God, who is jealous for order as he's creating, people who work in providential work or justice work, Providential work is work that keeps order, you know. The civil servants, the police, they reflect God. But at the same time, people who work in justice work, lawyers, paralegals, judges, they also reflect God. Now, if we think about, if we look at verse 5 of chapter 21, it says, this God has re-transformed this world by redeeming this world. He's making all things new. He's making all things new because he redeemed the world. Now, that also shows us two kinds of work that is reflected in this God that is making all things new. It's either he, we are a redemptive work or compassionate work. Redemptive work or compassionate work. So, redemptive work would be God-saving, reconciling actions in the world. So, people like evangelists, people like pastors, peace negotiators, writers, artists, poets, in fact, writers, artists, poets, producers, actors, and songwriters that have redemptive themes in their work. Now, I'm not saying, so they could be Christian 
songwriters, but they may not necessarily be writing explicit Christian songs if the songs itself have redemptive elements. In that regard, you are reflecting God, the Redeemer. But at the same time, that God, Redeemer, as we see in Christ, Christ says that he was filled with bowels of compassion. It also is reflected in compassionate wealth. So doctors, nurses, psychologists, therapists, counselors, social workers, NGO practitioners, community workers, and pharmacists, all of these people, because we believe in a God that is making all things new, they reflect God in their work. But I think it even goes deeper. And that's what we're going to reflect on today. You see, the text that we read is a text about the Bible's end. In fact, if you don't believe it, it's really at the end of the Bible, right? Just look at where it occurs. It's the Bible's end. But notice that it's an end, a very optimistic end, that actually starts a new thing. It's an end, but it's a beginning in itself. It is a new creation. Remember, the Bible starts and says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And that started something. And now John is saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What does that tell you and I? The God who started and said, in the beginning, I made heaven and new earth, made a material world. In other words, the end, what we call the end of the world, is the beginning of another material world. And if, as we saw in the very beginning, that world that he created, he made man work, then what do you think is going to happen in the new world he's created? Well, there's going to be work again there. Now, we can imagine with John a little bit deeper what that world will look like. It can make us think about our work today. So if there was work in the first old world, then there will be work in the new world. So I want us to look at this topic, work's future, Works future under these three headings. New conditions, new purpose, and then new people. New conditions, new purpose, and new people. So let's go to the first one, new conditions. Raise up your hand if you've read the book of Revelation in the last year. All right? All right. So, so about, about four people, four, four, four good. Raise up your hand if you ever read the book of Revelation in your life. All right. Raise up your hand even longer. That after you read it, you really understood what was going on there. All right, good, good, good. We're in very, very good company. All of you, all of us are ignorant, so why we can, we can try and... Now, the book of Revelation confuses us quite often because we don't always respect that the Bible, though it is a book, it's a compilation of books. And because it's a compilation of books, not all books are written in the same way. That is, they don't have the same style. They all have different, not all have, but some of them have different, what we call, genres. So, for instance, we know that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers are a book of history, right? But we also know that the Song of Solomon is not a book about history. It's a song, right? We know that the book of Ecclesiastes is almost, it's, almost what you call philosophical musings, wisdom. We know that the epistles are letters. So you cannot read these books in the same way. Now, the book of Revelation is what is a genre called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature was really flourished between 200 years before Christ and 200 years after Christ. It's really the Bible's view of, the Bible's take on what we'll call sci-fi, science fiction, futuristic 
science fiction is really the Bible's answer to that. It's a book of symbols, but you must never miss the point. Whatever you want to think about, you know, sometimes, uh, especially during the 80s and 90s, especially when we were thinking, a lot of people were thinking, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. They say, when you want to read the book of Revelation, you hold the book of Revelation in this hand, and then you hold the newspaper in this hand. Right? Because Russia has done something now, and you know because Russia is the symbol of Russia, is a, uh, Soviet Union is a bear, so we see the bear that is there, there's a beast there. America is the eagle, so there's an eagle that, you know, so you look at what's going on in the world and you can predict because the book of Revelation is there. Absolute nonsense. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, I'll say this. Hold the book of Revelation in this hand and then hold the Old Testament in this hand. There are symbols that are there. The symbols are meant to help us understand certain realities. It's a book about symbols, but never miss the point. It tells us what the book is all about in the very beginning of the book, Revelation 1, 1 to 2. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's about revealing Christ. In fact, it's called the book of Revelation, an unveiling of Christ. One time John was so moved by the revelation that the angel was showing him in Revelation 19. And he bowed down to worship the angel, and the angel said, don't worship me. I'm a man just like you. And he says, worship God. Why? Because the, the spirit of, that brings this prophecy is what? The testimony of Jesus Christ is in the book. So in one way, whatever the book of Revelation is about, it's going to reveal certain aspects of Jesus Christ and the things that Jesus has accomplished. Are we together? Now, there's another thing I have to say, again, just as a matter of guide. Um, it also, because it's a book of symbols, but it's also able to do certain things. Those symbols can, it uses what you can call mixed metaphors. That is, you can talk about a particular thing, give it one symbol, and then you want to say something about that same thing, and so you give it another symbol. So, for instance, in Revelation chapter 5, 5 to 6, we encounter... A lion. Almost in the next verse, five, that's verse 5 of chapter 5. In the, almost in the next verse, the lion is a lamb. And so some people, when they want to dry, draw it, they'll try to draw a mixture of a lion and a lamb. That is a weird creature. Which is it? Is it a mixture? Is it half lion, half lamb? Is it a kind of mixture of lion-lamb? Or what is it? No, the point is, and we know who that was talking about. Is it not who? Jesus. In fact, by the time you get to this reading of the text, the lion, who is the lamb, is also a temple and is also a lamp. What is it all doing? It is basically trying to tell us something about Jesus. On the one hand, we want to refer to Jesus as the lion, so he is the king, the ruling king that comes from the tribe of Judah, Israel's Messiah. But at the same time, he is a slaughtered lamb. We'll get to that later. At the same time, he is one, the temple is mediator between God and human beings. And so, in the text that we read here today, there's another mixing of metaphors. The new heavens and the new earth is also the new Jerusalem and is also the new Eden. Say that with me. The new heavens and the new earth is also the new Jerusalem and is also the new Eden. And what John is trying to show us here is one thing. 
He's contrasting the old and the new, and he's trying to say, in the afterlife, we are going to have a, a better cosmos, that's creation, a better city, and a better garden. In fact, the afterlife is an urban gardenic cosmos. But it is better than the one that came before. So, for instance, look at, let's look at the text. The new creation, um, in, verse, in verse 3 of chapter 21, oh, sorry, sorry, let's, let's look at verse 1 to 2 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Look up. There was no longer any sea. All right? So there's no water in the new heavens and the new earth. No. That's not what it, say, it means. There is no longer any sea. What is wrong with the sea? Well, if you understand your Old Testament, Israel were what you call, a, they, were, they were a land-faring people. You notice Israel is always talking about the land, the land, the land. The land have fallen onto me in pleasant places, right? We, the meek shall inherit the land. They love the land, but the sea they don't like. Why? Because the sea, that's where God threw their enemies. The Red Sea was a problem between them and the promised land. The, if you read certain parts of the book of Job and, and maybe some of the prophetic books, you hear about, how many of us have heard about Levi, Leviathan? Who is Leviathan? Yeah? Dinosaur, yeah. But it wasn't, that's not really the dinosaur. No. <laughs> Who said dinosaur? Well, the point is that it's a sea monster. And a sea monster, symbolic, a sea monster there, symbolic of a system that was against God. So in some times, Leviathan stood for the, for Egypt, and other times he stood for some of God's enemy, uh, Israel's enemies that came, but they always came from the sea. And then if you read in the book of Revelation, there were two beasts. One came from the earth, and one came from the sea, Revelation 13. In other words, Israel had never, ever encompassed anything good coming from the sea. And so all the horrible things that come from the sea, again, the place where evil comes from, so that's why he says, there will be no longer, verse 4, he will wipe away every, the tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has what? Passed away. So it's a better cosmos than the last one. There is no more sea. But it's also a better city. Now, again, think of the old. When you think of cities, when you think of cities, what do you think about immediately? Cities. Cities. What? Lagos. So what do you think about when you think about Lagos? Traffic. No, no, but there's something behind that. <laughs> eh? People. There are too many people in Lagos. People. Now, when God... Eh? What? Be careful. <laughs> when God created the world, he had how many people? Two people. So in the first order of things, there were two people. But God told those people, be fruitful and multiply. So on the one hand, there wasn't really a city there again. So in the, in the old order, there were just two people. In the new order, read Revelation chapter 7, there are multitudes and multitudes of people. It's a city. But also, after the fall, they, they were fruitful, they multiplied, and then Cain had a son, and Cain built a city, and of course, the city was going to be to the glory of God, wasn't it? No, he named the city after who? His son. And then you see this constant contrast 
of cities in the book of Revelation. This new Jerusalem is contrasted with another city called Babylon, where the new Jerusalem is seen as a bride, that Babylon is seen as what? A prostitute. It's not like that kind of city. It's a better city. So it's a better cosmos, it's a better city, but it's also a better garden. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verses 1 to 3 again. In that garden, if you remember the first garden, our children here were telling us about, uh, notice what is in, in the garden. That's, that's what I want to say. In that first garden, after God had put Adam there to walk and all of those things, when you now go to chapter Genesis chapter 3, how does Genesis chapter 3 start? Uh, the serpent was more wily, crafty than any beast of the field. Do you see the serpent there? And also, we remember that there was a tree of life, but there was also a tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. In fact, that was the means through which the serpent used to tempt them to bring about evil. Do you see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there? And notice when he said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But notice, there is a river that brings just what? Life. And there's the tree of what? Life. And very crucially, he says, because when Adam and Eve ate the tree for work, he said this, he cursed the ground. And verse 3 says, there shall be no more curse. The afterlife is very much like the, new, the life that we have now, except all that is awful and terrible about what we have now has been taken away. And therefore, in relation to work, the conditions for work, the things, now, you remember Adam, because of the curse, he said, you will eventually go to the ground where you have come from. You will die into that ground. All of a sudden now, there's no death. Work is not something that we keep doing, doing until we enter into pensionable age. You know what pension is, right? You've worked, you've done very well, but now you're on your way to the other place. Now you're working, but work is now no longer this journey that is taking you to the grave. The conditions have been changed. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to do something? You envisioned it in your mind. We entrepreneurs that are here, one-man businesses, you want to bake a cake. You've watched a wonderful uh, TV show, and the cake came out fantastic. And you thought you saw all the directions, everything, all the steps. <laughs> And then you, uh, you laid an egg. <laughs> I don't like where that's going. All right, come back to the Bible. <laughs> Actually, no, don't come back to the Bible. Come back to cake. All right. You envisioned it, and when it came out, I mean, the cake was there. It's edible. You can eat it, but it doesn't look like the way. There was something wrong with the flour. You bought cheap flour. That was the problem. <laughs> or you forgot to actually put baking soda inside. Or maybe... You, have, you, are, you are trying to solve a problem, and maybe you're a, you're a programmer, a computer code programmer. And each time you keep pressing run, you keep getting a bug. How many of us, how many of us program here? Uh, error. Error, error. You know how error is? They come with, at least the one I used to work with, they always come with red. They come with red, uh, the font uh, color is red. And then you'll be giving a sound like boom, boom, and like, you can't find it. 
Or those of us who work with spreadsheets, you know when the thing doesn't balance? Oh, gosh. Or maybe you're a songwriter. In your dreams, ah, that song was from the spirit. It came. You came down, you went to write it. It just isn't making any sense. And the reason is the conditions for our work always come to frustrate us. You know, don't get me wrong. It's not that we're not achieving things. We are achieving things. But most times, what we achieve is always a shadow of that which we want to achieve. And our conditions are there. The present conditions are there to frustrate us. But it says that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more what? Curse. In fact, the only thing that you will produce is excellence. Because what's excellence? Excellence is the right people, the result of the right people working under the right conditions. So how does that affect us? This new heaven and new earth. Well, the first thing I want to say is, as Christians, we should be people who aim for excellence in our work. Aiming for excellence in your work is not saying that I can produce all the excellence I can produce here today. No, it's saying I am anticipating and looking forward to a world that is to come where all I will produce is excellence. So today, I will work for excellence. Now, how do I achieve excellence? Very quickly, let me tell you two things. If you want to achieve excellence in your work, two things. Observe detail and embrace criticism. Observe detail and um, embrace criticism. You know, far too many times, we come across, and sometimes I'm guilty of this, you do a piece of work, or maybe you're working with people that are doing a piece of work, and you want to deliver, and you just be like, hey, let's just put it together, let's put it together, and then you want to give it to the people. And you say, somebody said, well, it's not, this is not doing, you say, eh, but is it not doing the thing that is meant to? Let's say you are preparing a presentation, a presentation, huh? And there's nothing more terrible, as far as I'm concerned, PowerPoint presentations that are all, have you ever been for PowerPoint presentations where they're all words? Words, I'm sure some of us are guilty of that. You populate the whole thing with just words, bullet points and words, and then the background is white, and then the font is just black, and then there are 80-something slides. <laughs> and at the fifth or the sixth slide, the, other, the person has zoned out. And then somebody comes to me and says, well, that, that thing was really, really, you know, it wasn't all that good. I'd be like, well, what was there? After all, I put the truth out there. Or you're a teacher, and you're preparing to teach, and maybe you want to teach your children, and you've read it, and you read the textbook from page 1 to page 832. All the truth is there. And then when you want to teach, you don't bring in any examples. You, don't bring, you just say, at least I'm conveying truth. Now, the problem is that we are not striving for excellence. Are you a nurse or are you a doctor? You remember, ah, oh God. Sorry, let me just quickly, a pet peeve of mine. Remember when you, you used to have all these uh, hospitals and you were sick, your mother took you there. And somehow, eventually it was a long queue, so it was now time for you to collect the job. And then you heard that sound, that dreaded sound. It was, a, it was a sound of boom, boom, boom. What was coming? Those were the shoes of the matron that was coming to give you. For some reason, all matrons were just fat. 
And when the matron came to come and give you the, why did we dread the matron? Because, oh yeah, hurry up, hurry up, pull it up, pull it, pull it down, pull it down. Come, boom. And she'll put it down and it's gone. Now, as far as she's concerned, we say, matron, but that was not the reason. What is that? The child is sick. The child needs healing. Injection is going to solve it. Give him the injection. What's that? But some of us have met nurses before. They still gave us that injection. But they were able to talk with us. They were able to take us through the process. They were able to give us customer service. There's something about the way we deliver our work that is quite important. I'm not saying you can't deliver it, but I'm saying excellence, trying to observe detail, is the thing that turns your average into good and your good into great. And before you think this is just kind of one kind of uh, motivational talk or whatever, this is, this is in anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth. That's the first thing. Detail. The second one is this. Embrace criticism. In Nigeria, many times people, you know, not even just Nigeria, a lot of social media. They say, don't, they say don't, don't even listen to that guy. He's just a critic. Oh, he's a hater. So when you write a bad review or something, they say, no, the guy is just a hater. You have to be careful with that kind of language. Because I'm not saying there are not critics that are not haters. But fundamentally, what is critique meant to? What, what, the, what does it stand for? Well, critique is saying something. That we have not yet reached our perfection. That's what it's first saying. And because you are not perfect yet, the things that you do is going to have flaws in them. It takes a critic to help you point out those flaws. The job of a critic is not for him to point out what is good. The point of a critic is for him to point out what is bad so that when you change what is bad, you can add it to what is good and your good becomes better. But part of the problem is when we hear something bad about because we are so invested in what we do, immediately the first thing we want to do is be defensive. Next thing is, so what have you even done, self? You know, this, this immature kind of thinking about the fact that somebody is a writer, he writes in a newspaper, and he cannot criticize the government because he has not yet served in the government. That's immature. God has called that person to be someone who observes and analyzes, and he's meant to critique the people who have been called to serve. They both need each other. And so when your boss calls you and tells you about this thing, don't start first thinking about this boss. Now, wow. Ah. You, when last did you do this thing yourself? If you are going to be excellent, you need to see your own faults. All right, I spent a lot of time on that. But as I said, this is an anticipation of a world where our output will only be excellent. But I must say something, just one more thing. In all I have said, you have to be aware of one thing. What I've just told you now is not the gospel of excellence. They're two different things. Many times you hear this thing. I, I, unfortunately, a lot of Christians peddle it. There is a sense in which we say, you know, Daniel had an excellent spirit. And so all Christians are called to be excellent. And by that, they're just saying, look, there's nothing God wants more than for his children to be excellent. Please, that's not what I'm saying. There's a difference between what we're saying and that kind of thing. And let me tell you what difference is. We excellence, we are called to be excellent in that we are meant to fulfill the best of our expandable capacity based on the limitations that we have. 
Not everyone has the same kind of gift. Let me tell you something. Whether he likes it or not, when Rooney can never be Leo Messi. Do you agree? Okay, how many of us have watched Messi before? That, that, that felt very flat. Okay, there are a lot of Ronaldo lovers here. That's the problem. Right, that's the problem. Okay, when Rooney can never be like Cristiano Ronaldo, right? But what Wayne Rooney can be, and he shouldn't aim necessarily to be Christian. He can try to allow Ronaldo to motivate him. But what Wayne Rooney should try to be is the best Wayne Rooney that can, he can be. Not just this, well, you know, excellent, excellent. We should be the best thing ever. Who told you Christian that best thing? Try. You can never, you, well, no, I'm not going to that. But in, again, the capacity that God has given us, which is expandable, so we must always try to expand our capacity, but God is calling you to be the best person you can be. All right? So let's go to the second point. So that's new conditions. Whew, the second point, new purpose. And I'm going to start to rush. Now, notice in verse 24 to 26. In verse 25, if you notice, it says that this gate, the gate of this city will never be shut. This city is eternally secure. Now, because it's eternally secure, we see something happening in verse 24 and verse 26. It says that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor, their glory into it. Verse 26, the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Now, here's what I was saying about interpreting the book of Revelation, Old Old Testament. What is really behind this is Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, where it says, Arise, shine, your light is come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's also Isaiah's future of the end. So to understand what the glory and the honor that is being brought into this eternally secure city is, you go to Isaiah chapter 60. Let me just read a couple of verses there. Isaiah 60 verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 5. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of nations will come. Verse 9. Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the, honor, uh, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. And verse 11. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that the people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. This is basically what's happening. Isaiah envisions, and don't forget, when you, um, the Bible is a book of progressive revelation. It's not a book of corrective revelation. And I wish I could spend time on that. But it's progressive. In other words, there is nothing that is in Isaiah that is not true, that revelation is trying to correct. It is true at the time. Then, as Jesus comes, some of these things become clearer. Or he updates certain things because built into the revelation was always the need for an update. So we don't say, I am Jesus-centered, and so therefore what was happening there in the Old Testament is wrong. No. So Isaiah envisions the future based on his revelation as people from foreign nations coming now to Israel, particularly the city of Jerusalem, and they are bringing the wealth of those nations or the glory. Why is it called the glory and it's the wealth? When you think of Switzerland, what do you think about? Forget, I'm not talking about their banks. All right, that, that's not a glory. All right? When you think of Switzerland, what do you think about? Chocolate, right? You thought of cocoa. There was cocoa, but now there is, oh, sorry, there was cocoa, right? And there, now there is chocolate. 
When you think of Switzerland, you think of chocolate. The glory of Switzerland is that which Switzerland is able to produce and produce distinctly, and now they're bringing it as an offering. And so in this regard, the foreign nations are now coming with their own wealth, the things they are noted for, and they are bringing it to the God of Israel. What is that signifying? It's signifying that these nations who were under different gods before have now come in the future to acknowledge that Israel's God is the true God. And so the, the offering of their wealth is a form of worship. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, verse six says um, herds, of camel, herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and from all Sheba will come. Doing what? Bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of who? The Lord. Or in verse 9 it says, with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Now they are acknowledging that Israel's God is the true God. And the proof of that is that they bring the works of their hands, that which is distinctive to them, as a means of worship and offering. That's what's happening in the New Jerusalem. But there's something happening in another city as well. If we turn to Revelation chapter 18, we meet another city in verse 9, Babylon. And work is also being produced there in that same city, but it comes with a different motif. In Revelation chapter 19, it says here, it says uh, 18 verse 9, when the kings of the earth, so this is another one again, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Later in verse 11, it says, also the merchants of the earth. New Jerusalem has one fate. Babylon has another fate. The problem in New Jerusalem, people have taken their work as an offering unto God. In Babylon, the work was also excellent. They were bringing all manner of goods. But later in verse, in verse 9, notice what it says. It says, the kings of the earth who had committed what? Adultery. Anytime you see adultery in the Bible, especially in symbolic literature, is one thing that is representing idolatry, the worship of another god. In other words, in fact, if you read verse eleven, it says one of the things they did. There was also wicked. They, you know, you can do slavery and you can do it very excellently. Huh? You know, there's more porn, porn. The porn industry on the internet is like is is bigger than than Hollywood. Right? Because all the videos are done very well. They produce it nicely. Everything is excellent. But it's evil work. And these people, with all their excellent work, is not as an offering to God. It is an idolatrous offering. That is, it is to serve the worship of men or something else that is not God. And that's something we're very familiar with, isn't it? Take the issue of identity. There are three lies um, and then there's a fourth of identity, uh, three uh, statements that are lies, and I'll give you a fourth. One statement is this, I am what I feel. Well, if what you feel is like feeling like cheating on your wife, are you really sure that what, I, I should identify you with what you feel? Or here's another one, I am what I have. What if you have little or nothing? And here's another one, I am what other people think of me. What if they think you are the devil? Or even worse, what if they think you are God? 
But there's even another terrible statement, and it's this, I am what I do. You know how it is here in Lagos now, you go out, your friends, and you've not seen this friend in a long time, and he comes around and says, hey, how are you doing now? He says, so what do you do? And you know what's going on most times. The person is trying to measure, gauge you. Because that person has bought into the idea of, I am what I do. And then you, let's say, you have decided in principle to become a stay-at-home wife. Or let's say you decided, you studied one thing, you hated the law degree that you studied, and so you decided to go into nursing. But now, because you've seen, and don't forget the, the, reason, the other reason why somebody asked that question. You know the people that ask that question? is the people that want you to also ask them what they do. Uh, the guy has become a big-time investment banker. Ah, for a long time, what are you doing? You know, ah, so what are you doing now? What are you doing now? All right, quickly get, tell me what you're doing. So I am me, well, yeah, we just really recently opened another business in, uh, in Ghana. Yeah, things are really hard. You know, I'm so tired. I, th I don't have time for myself. You know, I just made law a partner in law, but people don't understand. The rich also, hi. Hard managing all these people because we are trying to measure. And you, when you listen to that, you you say, "Yeah, I, I'm a teacher, but I've, I've been thinking about opening my own school." <laughs> mm -hmm. Because we feel what's happening. Both the questioner and the person being questioned, we've bought into this idolatrous worldview that I am what I do. That's Babylon, not Jerusalem. And this is part of the problem that we face. Why, again, some of the, the excellence, the, we don't bring out the best in what we are meant to be. Because we try to do other things that God hasn't called us to do. Now, if you are what you do, that is you are defined. Guess what? Whatever defines you is your God. Whatever defines you is your God. Babylon is a system where when it's through our work, our, we have decided that our work is meant to define us. That's why some people treat other people terribly when they're not doing the work, that working under them, they don't do it in the way they want to do it. We've got to be very careful. You see, in Jerusalem, we have another view. And that view is that only God should, God in Christ should be able to define you. And when he gives you this identity, it's not an identity that you can work for. It's an identity that is gotten by grace. It's free. And because it is free, it is freeing. It is liberating. Because look at this here. I mean, if I don't, if my work, the best thing about my work, the, uh, the fact that I'm no, I don't have to appear on Forbes or whatever, if that is not what defines me, I don't have the pressure of trying to prove something that I am not. And without that pressure, guess what I can do? I can be the best person I am. I can do the best on that work. Why? Because now this work is not serving to define me. This work is now an expression of worship unto God. My identity is not in my work. My identity is in Christ. And now that I am in Christ, I can do the work as an offering unto Christ. That is Jerusalem. That's where we are heading. Babylon, whose fate we seek later, 
is what calls you to be, to define yourself by what you earn. Define yourself by what you do. So we are not saying don't do the best you can. In fact, I'm saying the only way you can truly do the best you can is if you don't find your identity in what you do. The final thing. A new people. Now, in summary, we've been trying to build a Christian worldview. I'm not trying to say this is all. In these three sermons, this is all we can think about work. But here, some of the things that we've learned when we take this creation, fall, redemption, new creation, is that our work is a dignifying priestly call to serve humanity through what we do. God calls us. It is God's call. It's not your call. God calls us, and through us, God is going to bless humanity through what we do. But this call is also a means of producing excellent work according to our best our expandable capacity, but it's an offering of worship to God. Our work is also a means of creating value because we are God's image bearers. And all of this is meant to be done in, a re in relationship, whether it is bosses and our subordinates, we are meant to do it from a Christ-centered lens. We are meant to be bosses who, who imitate the master who is Jesus Christ. And we are meant to be subordinate who submit to our bosses as though we are submitting to Christ. These are all aspects of what it means to have a Christian worldview of work. But I must say this. It is a Christian worldview. It is a Christian worldview. And in this Christian worldview, remember, there is a future. There is an afterlife. But one of the things we've seen here is that there are two cities. And those two cities don't have the same fate. You are either going to Babylon or you are going to Jerusalem. What happened to Babylon? Babylon eventually is eternally destroyed. In fact, notice in this new Jerusalem, there are people that are not there. If you read Revelation 28, 21 verse 8, it says that those who do these things, cowardly, those who murder, all of those people, they will burn in the lake of fire and brimstone. Friends, that is not archaic. That is an eternal truth. And actually, it's a truth we should want to like. Babylon must fall and must fall eternally. Babylon is responsible for human trafficking and slavery. Babylon is, on, is responsible for all manner of awful things in this world, it must fall. But Babylon doesn't fall alone. People commit adultery with Babylon. So there's one fate, Babylon, and the people that are there will not be in this new creation. And let me say this. Maybe you're here and you're saying, well, you know, the option wasn't, I, I want the conditions. I actually do want the conditions of the new Jerusalem. The problem is I can't do this whole worship of God thing. I can't, I can't, this God thing. I, I love this vision of the new Jerusalem. I love this vision of work, but I can't do the God thing. And can I say to you that you have been not, you've not been listening? Or you've not been reading the text? We said there is a better cosmos, but in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is now with men in that cosmos. It's a better city, but in verses 22 and 23, it says, The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb by its temple. The, uh, the glory of God gives it light and its lamp. 
It's a better garden. But notice he says in verse uh, uh, 3 of chapter 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb are in that city. Don't you get it? What makes the new Jerusalem new, what makes it fantastic, is not the conditions, is the presence of God there. If you say you want the conditions of New Jerusalem, but you still want to live in Babylon, it is because, oh, sorry, when you say you want New Jerusalem, but you want it without God, you've just described Babylon. There is nobody that is going to be in hell that did not choose and want to be there. Because once you say you reject God, you are ultimately choosing hell. God doesn't have any good thing to give you apart from himself. And this is the reason why there is no work in hell. You know why there's no work in hell? Because there is no worship of God in hell. Work is a form of worship. And so if you want to work in the afterlife, it is because that the only place for work is worship of God. But there are also people in the New Jerusalem. Who are these people, finally? Well, it says later in verse 27 of chapter 21 that those people are the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Two things. Who is the Lamb? Why does it say the Lamb? Why doesn't it just say Jesus Christ? Well, it's very simple. Read Revelation 13, verse 8. It says that I saw a vision and I saw this Lamb as though it had been slain. Let me read it. Revelation 13, verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain. The reason why why we uses the lamb metaphor is because the lamb was a symbol for sacrifice. Why is there no curse in the new garden, in the new cosmos? It's very simple. Because the consequences of the curse have been borne by the lamb. It was made a curse for us. And this is Jesus' death on the cross. It transforms our work but it's the only basis upon which we can partake in the new Jerusalem. Secondly, even though that lamb had been slain, notice the lamb is still in the new Jerusalem. In other words, the lamb did not just remain dead. The lamb rose again. And that's why it's a book of life. It's a book of life because it's a book of eternal life. And we may be here today, and yes, you wanted to hear about work. And I hope you've heard about work. But I can tell you this. Without having your name in the Lamb's book of life, all of this is something to anticipate, but you are anticipating the wrong thing. If your name is not written in the book of life, you can't really re-envision your work here in the present in the way we've just spoken. Why not embrace him? Why not embrace this lamb who defines you and he didn't say you should work to earn that definition? Why not embrace this lamb whose consequences is saying you don't have to suffer? I have suffered for you. And why not then embrace this lamb who gives you new life so that you can think about work in a different light, anticipating the world that is to come? Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for work. But more importantly, we thank you for you. We thank you that in the new Jerusalem, the lion, uh, the lamb and the throne of God are there. It helps us to always remember that behind our work, at the center of our work, in front of our work, is a lamb that was slain. Slain, O oh Lord, to give us new life, and slain, O oh God, to help us re-envision our work. Father, I pray that as we enter into this week, as we start to contemplate the work in the different conditions that we find ourselves, that you would help us to think about this work, O oh Lord, in a way that glorifies you. Help us to think about this work in a way, O oh Lord, that is a response to your call. In a way not to make our identity out of, but in a way to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that this will be multiplied, not just in these people that are in this church, but for many of your people that are in this city. We ask that you do all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people. Love Lagos.